Epistle reading from Colossians 3. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Turn to uh, the epistle reading, if you would. That's in Colossians 3. You can find it in the bulletin. We just read it a second ago, or you can find it in your uh, pew Bibles there. This is the third and final sermon. So I've, this is, I, I know this has been wonky since I was out of town, and then um, um, Jacob came and preached last Sunday, and uh, Josh uh, preached uh, four weeks ago. So this has been uh, hit and miss with these sermons, but this is, believe me, it's the third and final sermon in this series on the vision pillars that we came up with as a congregation as a part of the uh, um, ministry clarity process that uh, we're doing with uh, LCEF. And uh, the first two pillars, let me just remind you, I know it's been a while. The first pillar is, actually I could just, I'll, I'll read you the, um, the, the vision statement, which is on the back of the bulletin. Together we found healing and hope in Jesus Christ and welcome others to experience these same gospel promises. So the first pillar that we talked about was healing. Uh, uh, in conversations with a bunch of you, the surveys that you guys did and conversations that were led by uh, uh, Pastor Tom, our LCF guy, uh, one of the things that came out uh, most clearly from you guys is that you've experienced healing at St. James, uh, and that means different kinds of things. I, I, I won't go into that right now because that was, a, uh, I preached on that a month ago. Um, the third pillar was restoration. We're welcoming others to experience these same gospel promises. So recognition that God's put us on mission here in Glen Carbon and Edwardsville, that we're not here to be a Christian interest group. We're not here to be kind of like we all think the same thing, and so let's get together on Sundays and boost each other up. But we're actually here because God has a plan to redeem Glen Carbon and Edwardsville back to himself. And he has chosen in his sovereign love, we don't understand all of this, but for some reason he's chosen us to be a part of that. We're, we don't have to do it, he does it, but he's allowing us to be on that path with him as he redeems Glenn Carbon back to himself. How does this happen? How does the connection get between us being a church that's healed and being healed to us being a church that's on mission, providing God's restoration to Glenn Carbon? And the answer is, uh, this is what I'm talking about this morning, the third pillar is community. Now, I know that some of you are like, well, wait a minute, the answer has to be Jesus, right? That's true. That's definitely true. What, how does Jesus do this, though? And then some, some, else are gonna, some, some others of you are going to say, well, I know how he does this. He does this through his word, through his word in, in Scripture, through his word in uh, Holy Communion and Baptism. Okay, yes, but what does that mean to look like a people who've been united to Christ and who feed on his word, what does that look like? And how is God actually doing this where the rubber meets the road? How is the word doing this? And the answer is Christian community. 
So that brings us to Colossians 3. Now, my burden here is I've preached so many sermons on community that I'm not going to say, I'm just telling you right up front, I'm not going to say anything that's mind-blowing or new to most of you. A lot of this is going to be um, um, a repeat, I, not in a negative sense, but we need to hear this quite a bit. What I am going to try to do every time I preach on community is preach on a different text, just to show us all that like Paul and Peter and Jesus and the lot, this is very important to them. It's not a one-off thing that they speak about. It's something that comes up over and over and over in Paul's letters, the importance of being the body of Christ on, on every single different level of these ministry pillars, on who we are, but also in who we're called to be and what we're called to do. Community is vitally important. So back to Galatians 3. I'm sorry, Colossians 3. And let me set this up for you real quick. Colossians 3 is talking about our ministry pillars, and we didn't read the whole thing, but Colossians 3 starts off with this. If you've been raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1, and what Paul is saying is this is who you are. This is this healed part. This is the first pillar. You have been raised with Christ. Inside Jesus Christ, you have been cured of death. You've been raised with Christ. Then he says, because of that, and he goes to our third ministry pillar, seek the things above. Look for new creation things to happen. Don't focus on the things of the earth, but focus on what God is doing in this new creation mission. And then in verse nine, he gets to how he connects those two things together. And the answer is, is community. Uh, so don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. This is verses nine through 11. I'm gonna read real quick here. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul's link between who we are and what we're called to be is Christian community. It's the body of Christ. There's two things, two things that, that Paul highlights here. Oh, let me start by saying, I'll just give you my outline off the bat so you can time the sermon. I know that's what the outline is good for. So the first point is the, the, the practice of Christian community is love. The second point is going to be the basis of Christian community is union with Christ. And then the third point is the grace of Christian community is forgiveness. So first of all, the practice of Christian community is love. Within that, there's two parts of this, okay? So, so of course, verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So Paul says, this is the apex. This is who we're called. Above everything else that I've said, love is the main thing. What does that mean? First of all, in verse 9, here's the first part, truth-telling. Don't lie to each other. Tell the truth. And the second part is, I don't know really a good word for this, except for like compassion. This is in verse, uh, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So both of these things is a part of what it means to practice life in Christian community is truth-telling and compassion. And you, can't, you have to have both of these things for Christian community. We crave both of these things. Those of us who are Christians, those of you who aren't believers, you crave this. You long for a world where people will love you in truth, where people will be compassionate and acceptance of you, but in truth. And both of those things have to be there. If people are telling me, so if both those things aren't there, or if I'm not in community, if I don't know the people who I'm interact interacting with, and they're telling me things about loving me, they're encouraging me, but I'm suspicious that they don't really mean it. And they go, I know this is a junior high thing, they, but, but we all are afraid of this. Like, do they really like me? I'm suspicious that they go behind my back and they don't really 
they aren't as interested in me as they act like when they're talking to me. It does me no good if I find out that they've said all kinds of nice things and done all kinds of encouraging things for me, but they actually don't really care for me. It's not, maybe it's compassion of a sort, but it's not truthful compassion, and so it's worthless to me. If people tell me the truth about who I am, and I long for this, you long for this too. We all want to change and grow. We want to know what's real. We want people to tell us exactly what they think. Tell me like it is. Tell me how it is. But if they don't do it with compassion and truth, if they're bullies, also worthless to me. Both of these things can be very damaging. We need both of these things. This is the way true love works, by the way. I'm going to come back to this in just a few minutes. But there's this notion that if God loves us, he should just let us kind of do what we want. It's a cultural notion. I'm not saying that anybody in here specifically has it, but we all kind of grapple with this. This, this frankly, is just not the way love works. Love always accepts completely, but always makes demands. This is a great quote from G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. It's a chapter where he's talking about love and what love means. It's fantastic if you can hack your way through it. Chesterton's not always the easiest to understand. But if you can hack your way through it, it's, it's, um, it's amazingly rewarding. But in one section in there, he's talking about the love that a, a wife would have for her husband. And he says this. Some stupid people started the idea that because women obviously back up their own people through everything, therefore women are blind and do not see anything. And this is written uh, over 100 years ago. So uh, maybe we would say this differently. But the notion that because Women defend their tribe, women defend their lot, women defend their kids and their husbands, no questions asked. Chesterton says, some people look at that and say, well, women are kind of stupid, they don't even really know what's real. Chesterton says, they can hardly have known any women. The same women who are ready to defend their men through thick and thin are, in their personal intercourse with the man, almost morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses or the thickness of his head. See what he's saying? In Chesterton's story, a woman who loves a man will defend him through thick and thin against all comers, but one-on-one, she's morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses. She doesn't tolerate any nonsense from him, and she knows above all people that his thick head needs to be softened. A man's friend likes him but leaves him as he is. His wife loves him and is always trying to turn him into somebody else. And Chesterton's point is that this is what true love does. Nobody in this room loves me more than Angela does. Nobody in this room is more painfully aware of my faults and my weaknesses and my sins than Angela is. And nobody in this room is more determined to make me a better person than Angela is. That's what true love is. And if I insist, if you love me, you'll leave me alone, what I'm asking her for is not true love. If also in some weird sort of way, masochistic way, I would say, tell me the truth, but don't give me compassion. I don't even know what that would mean. Also, that would not be true community either. We crave both of these things because we crave love. And trying to short circuit these things by giving one or the other is not gonna, it's not gonna lead to true Christian community. Okay, there are three barriers to this kind of culture of community. There are three barriers that you and I are gonna have to building this culture of community. One is, two of these, I'm just going to go through these fast because I've kind of mentioned them already. One is lack of love. People telling truth. It's good to tell truth, but without compassion, meekness, and patience. Some people tell the truth and they say, that's what, I'm just telling you the truth. Who cares? You need to hear the truth. And how I'm delivering it is of no consequence because the main thing is truth. Sometimes people even actually call this love, tough love, they say. 
I tell you the truth and I don't care. But actually, we, we, we have to insist along with Paul that compassionate hearts are important in verse 12. Compassion means to feel along with. If we're telling the truth, but we're not feeling along with the person to whom we're telling the truth, then we're not actually loving them. We want to be saying the truth, which is good, but we're not actually giving them love. Humility, he mentions humility and meekness. To tell people the truth from the basis of, I'm not smarter than you telling you what to do. I'm not better than you telling you what to do. But I am walking through this with you. I too, this is what humility and meekness is. I too am weak. I too am sinful. I too am broken. Can I walk through this with you? Humility and meekness. And also patience. It mentions at the very end of verse 12, patience. To tell the truth to people and say, get this straightened up right now or you're done, is not Christian. It's not a part of Christian community. Sanctification doesn't work like that. We tell the truth. We do it with compassion, with meekness. We receive the truth, given in compassionate meekness. And we hope and pray for them. They're going to give us patience to grow into the truth that they already know and are telling us, but we, are not yet, we have not yet arrived at and vice versa. So truth and love together. These are the, these are the two, two, two of the biggest barriers. But the third one, there's a deeper problem behind this. This is the third barrier. This is the deeper problem underlining, underlying these two, lack of love and lack of truth, is when we find our identity in ourselves, this is what it comes down to. It's hard to be in community when we each find who we are in who we are. When I find who I am, when I locate my purpose and meaning and identity in something about myself, it cuts me off from you. It cuts me off from community. And it works like this. Oh, let me, let me just do this as an example. So you guys know this. Like I, I, uh, I struggle, I probably like all of you in your work, I struggle with finding my meaning and my purposes in my sermons. If my sermons are successful, I'm happy. If my sermons aren't successful, it's a blow to me personally. It cuts at me personally. Well, how do I measure sermon success? Well, because you can only really measure this sort of thing in community, I measure it based upon how it's received by you guys. If a bunch of people say, wow, that was a mind-blowing sermon, I can walk out of here in peace. I am justified. My existence counts. If a couple of you say, Nice sermon, the way that you would say, hot today, isn't it? I'll probably be like, oh, I don't know. If you're critical of my sermon, though, which, by the way, I'm encouraging you to be against everything, all my intuitions. I'm encouraging you to be critical of my sermons. I need that. I need love, of course, but I need the truth. It's a blow to me personally. It sits in my head. It wakes me up in the middle of the night. It makes me feel like a failure. It makes me go home and grumble to Angela about that was a lousy sermon. And then she's got to like slap me around a little bit. Now, what have I done? Well, I, first of all, I found my identity in something about myself. I've justified my own self with my sermons. It's bad. Paul says in Romans 3, Galatians 2 and 3, it's bad to justify yourself with your own works. But two, I've also cut myself off from community with you guys. One of you is going to have something very, very helpful to say about my sermon, and I refuse to listen to it because it's a blow to my identity. This is what I mean by when we find our identity in ourselves, we cut off Christian community. Those of you who teach know this. It's becoming harder and harder to give students grades, and the reason why is because students don't see anymore as postmodern, stu students don't see their grades as attempts to learn, you know, to learn a, a topic, but actually reflections of who they are personally. And to give a student a bad grade on a project is actually 
what you're doing is you're undermining them personally. So when I teach at Lewis and Clark, one of the things I notice is that students, they're not just troubled when I give them a bad grade. They're actually offended that I would presume to grade something that comes from them, to even grade it, to even say I have a right to sit in judgment over your two-page writing project is offensive. And the reason why, I feel the same way when I get grades too, by the way. The reason why is because they've identified themselves with their academic success or failure. And those of you who are students know what it's like to live on your grades, to live on finding out who in the class did, 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 did how on this project and did, how do I measure up against them. We find our identity in ourselves and it cuts off Christian community. This is the third barrier. What's the solution to this? If the, if, the, if the practice of Christian community is love, but it's difficult because we're turned in on ourselves and because we are, find our identity in ourselves, the solution is, point number two, the basis of Christian community, which is unity in Christ. Again, verse 11. Here in the Christian church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And what, what, what Paul is saying is, is that Christ is everything. There's no space for any other sort of identity. Now, he's not saying there's no such thing as Greeks or Jews. Of course, ethnically there is, culturally there is. But he's saying if you find your identity in your cultural, in, in your ethnicity, in your cultural background, then you are missing who you really are in Jesus Christ. If you find your identity in circumcision or uncircumcision, in religion, you're missing who you are in Jesus Christ. Barbarian and Scythian actually isn't... Um, it's not an either, but barbarians, you know what that is, non-Greek speakers, uh, the hoi polloi, you, you know, the, the lower classes. Scythian is like the lowest of all the low classes that you could think of. It's, it's sort of a remote Asia, but hardly understood in Paul's day. Uh, an ethnic group up in the remote part of Asia who was very barbaric according to Greek terms. You have um, slave or free socioeconomic status. If you find your identity in your job, if you find your identity in your bank account, in the money that you make or the car that you drive or how you dress, you are missing out on who you are. You are in Christ. And if you find your identity in these other things, you are wrecking Christian community. When we do that, we wreck Christian community. Just as when I find my identity in my sermons, I wreck Christian community. Christ is all and in all though. And that means God is offering you a new, fresh identity, not found in yourself, but found in something permanent, something infinitely truthful, something infinitely loving, and something that is offered to you free of charge in Jesus Christ. When Christ died on the cross, we died with him. That means my good sermonizing died on the cross. I use my good sermons to justify myself, that dies on the cross. I no longer need to preach good sermons to justify myself because God looks at me, whether I preach a good sermon or a bad sermon, God looks at me and says, Aaron, in Jesus Christ, you are perfect. Does this mean I don't need to preach good sermons or work on preaching good sermons? Absolutely not. How can we keep on sinning to make grace abound? As Paul says in Romans 6. But it frees me up not to worry about it not to stress about it. It frees me up to accept your criticism of my sermons because I know that you love me and not be devastated by it because in Jesus Christ, you've not done anything to my ultimate value. You've not ruined that at all. In fact, you've enhanced who I am in day-to-day -day life by being loving enough to tell me the truth about the weakness in my sermon. This is because, this only happens because we're in Jesus Christ. And by the way, it can only ever happen in Jesus Christ. There's no way to short-circuit this outside of Christianity. 
I, it's a very, very bold claim. I guess I'm a Christian pastor. I'm allowed to make bold claims about Jesus up here. You can't find this anywhere else. You can't find this in your socioeconomic status, your ethnicity. He just listed all those groups. It's not bad to have these secondary groups that you belong to. Sometimes people will say to me, yeah, what you say is really important about community. I'm so glad I've got this really good community at my, my neighborhood. A bunch of us are good friends and we hang out with each other and we're really close. I'm super glad for that. It's, super, it's very, very important that you have good, intimate friends in your neighbors, uh, the local car club that you belong to. It's good that you have good, deep friendships there. Your friends at work, uh, fellow parents of your kids on their sports teams, it's great if you have great relationships with those. Those things are all temporary, though. If you move out of that neighborhood, you lose those friendships, especially if you have to move out of that neighborhood because you can't afford the house anymore. Once your kids grow up and move away, the reason to hang out with their, with their t-ball friends' parents is now gone. If you get fired from your job, the reason to be friends with those people at work is now gone. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying that's the way, that's the way uh, secondary communities work. However, one thing will always stay the same. In Jesus Christ, you are always perfectly accepted. That's why he says Christ is all in all. It's because you can't escape that community. It's real and it's permanent and it goes on and on. Now, the postmodern dilemma is this. We don't like accountability in community. We resist it. We resist people getting too close, but we desperately crave it. We are the loneliest people that have ever existed in the history of humanity. I don't, I don't mean us sitting in this room, but I mean postmodern Westerns. We are the loneliest people that have ever existed in the history of humanity. We've cut ourselves off. We've been encouraged to do this. We've been encouraged to believe in ourselves. We've been encouraged to follow our own hearts. We've been, we, we, we've been encouraged to maybe even more callously look out for number one. And now we find ourselves desperately lonely. And we hate it. But we can't give up on that creed of following our own, own hearts and doing what we want to do. We feel like that. Others feel like that too. I talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about uh, starting a Christian counseling center here someday. People in our community feel desperately lonely as well. And the reason why is because all the secondary communities that they've started are founded on things that have to do with themselves, the, the, their jobs or their money or, or whatnot, their, their kids. And they know that those things are fleeting. They know that those things are, are very tenuous, that in order to maintain their socioeconomic friend group, they have to keep on working and working and working and working to keep that up. And they know that depending upon them, that's not always going to be there. And that means that we are positioned, the Christian church is positioned to offer people what they desperately need. And that is the truth and love of real genuine community. All right. Only found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in this new fresh community that he started. So that brings us to the third, uh, the third uh, point here, the grace of Christian community forgiveness. How does this hit the street? How is this real? We're, we're supposed to love each other and tell the truth to each other. The way that this is best done, verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Paul unpacks what he means. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In our culture, everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Everything is permitted and nothing is forgiven. Everything's allowed. Just do what you want to do. 
except for there's a handful of things that if you do, there is no turning back from. We will never, ever forgive you. We all hate this. We all hate this. We all hate the games that this forces us to play, to act like we've got it together. In this scenario, forgiveness becomes code for just allowing people to do what they want, even if it's damaging. You have to love them enough to let them do whatever they want. You, you guys have heard this before. I'm saying that's bogus. I, had, um, I, I was uh, selected for jury duty uh, two or three years ago. It's right before COVID, I think, because I'm a great citizen. They selected me for jury duty, and um, I, I made it through. I actually uh, was selected. I am a great citizen. I was selected to be on the jury, and the jury didn't meet because uh, they settled. But anyway, when I was, uh, you know, so if you've ever been to uh, the jury duty selection process, you'll know that the lawyers from both sides, the defense and the prosecution, will ask the, 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 the prospective jurors questions. And this was, um, this was an assault case. A, a, a man had assaulted a woman. And the, def the defense, so the lawyer for the defense, the guy who assaulted the woman, said to me, he's, you know, you know, you know who, who are you? What do you do? I'm a Christian pastor. He goes, oh, this is great. I've always wanted to ask this question. Is your belief in forgiveness going to influence the way that you view how I prosecute this case, he asked. And what was behind that? What was behind that was his notion that if I believe in forgiveness, I'm liable to say, oh, he's guilty, but we should just be nice and let it go. See, that's a cultural view of forgiveness, that I disagree with you, I actually think that you might be wrong, but I have to love you enough just to let you do that anyway. This sort of view of forgiveness has created a scenario where we all feel guilt, so he said, we're the loneliest of people that have ever lived. We're also amongst the most guilt-feeling people. We're almost, we're almost medieval European in the amount of angst that we feel about who we are. You just, listen to, you just watch Netflix or listen to pop music to hear the angst just dripping out of people's lives. So I was reading a piece on psychology today about this topic of guilt. And I'll just share this with you real quick. Uh, and the, you can look it up. It's called Eight Empowering Ways to Stop Feeling Guilty. Eight Empowering Ways to Stop Feeling Guilty. And almost all of them are bogus. I'll give you a few of them here. Um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why they're bogus in a second. One is make a list of the things you do right. Okay, so if you're feeling guilty, and you, you can look up this article. I'm condensing it, and I'm not giving you all the points because a couple of the points were actually pretty legitimate. I'm gonna give you some of the ones that were a little bit bogus. The first one was actually make a list of the things that you do right. Well, what's the point of that? The point of that is, if you're feeling guilty, stop thinking about that and start thinking about the good things that you do. All right? You don't want to feel guilty. The way to not feel guilty is to stop thinking about feeling guilty. Make a list of how good you are. Second thing, learn to appreciate yourself in everything you do. Okay, that's along the same track. Three, learn to be as compassionate with yourself as you are with others. All right? This is, you should be compassionate with yourself. But, but as a tool for dealing with our deep-seated guilt in our culture, this is largely ineffective. I just need to be nice to myself. Stop thinking in black and white. Stop thinking in right and wrong, in terms of right and wrong, or truth and, and error. Stop thinking about that. that this is just, that's fluid terms. We, we, we've, we've progressed past that. Uh, we, know, we now no longer believe in good or evil. Um, five, decide how much you can do to be better. Figure out your limits, and then let the people in your life know what you plan to do and not do. In other words, you're probably feeling guilty because you're too nice. You overextend yourself, and then 
you create high expectations for yourself and you don't meet them. What you need to do is lower your expectations, let everybody around you know, you, know that you're lowering your expectations, and then kind of settle for that middle of the road sort of me- mediocrity. Uh, six, realize it's okay to take care of your own needs. Okay, all these things on the surface are just fine. I hope that you take care of your own needs, of course. But what I'm saying is as a tool for dealing with the guilt that we feel to say, I'm gonna pretend like there's no guilt, actual guilt, and I'm just gonna try to be blind to the real guilt. This is actually damaging because we all know that we're guilty. It was 30 years ago when Al Franken did the Stuart Smalley character on SNL. It was a joke, you know, that you need to learn to say to yourself, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. That's what you have to learn to tell yourself. It was actually a joke because, well, that's a stupid thing to tell yourself. That's the kind of thing weak-minded people do is to remind themselves, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough and doggone it, people like me. Actually, when I look in the mirror in the morning, I know that I have not been good enough in the things that I've thought and the things that I've said and the things that I've done. I know I've been foolish in the things that I've thought and the things that I've said and the things that I've done. And I know that if people weren't gracious with me like you guys were, people would not like me because of those things. What, I'm, what am I gonna do? Well, I need forgiveness. I need to not figure out some sort of mechanism for not thinking or feeling the guilt that I have. I need to actually be forgiven. Again, this goes back to the Jesus thing, right? Jesus forgives us. His death and resurrection says, Aaron Miller, you are perfect, but I will not experience that outside of you guys forgiving me too. That's why he says in verse 13, bear with one another, and if one is to complain against another, forgiving each other. And then he stops and says, let me explain what I mean. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is a very, very deep and valuable New Testament teaching, is that we don't forgive each other because we're trying to act like Jesus who forgives us. We forgive each other because Jesus has forgiven us. The forgiveness that you and I offer each other is because Jesus has forgiven us. And when I, when I do something or say something stupid and Angela, I hurt Angela and I say to her, Angela, will you forgive me? And she says, yes, I forgive you. What's happening is in Christian community, she's not just saying, oh, it's okay. Yeah, it's fine. Whatever. I'm kind of, I'm kind of lousy too. What she is saying is, is Jesus has forgiven me, Aaron. I'm passing on that to you. Which means that when Angela forgives me, she's forgiving me, but she's also the conduit through which Jesus himself is forgiving me. When you guys forgive me for for preaching lousy sermons and for being a bad pastor, it's not just you being nice. It's actually you forgiving me as as Jesus has forgiven you. I desperately need that. Look, I can go home and I can tell myself over and over, Aaron, you're nice. You're nice. You're a nice guy, Aaron. You just have to believe. If everybody in my life is saying, Aaron, you are not a nice guy, it will be impossible for me to believe that I'm a nice guy as much as I'm saying that to each other, to, to, my, to myself. I can tell myself over and over, Aaron, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. But unless I hear it from you guys, it's not out loud. It's not tangible. It's not physically, audibly real. Everybody out there, everybody in here wants forgiveness. This is why people write articles on psychology today about how to get around the need for forgiveness is because we want it so bad. Let's offer that to each other. So one powerful tool we have is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we can offer people. We can say to people, I completely, 100% accept you for who you are, no questions asked. Now, 
jump on the train. Jesus is changing all of us to make us look more like himself. It's a powerful medicine. People, even if they don't know the language to put that to right now, they crave it. I crave it. You crave it. People out there crave it too. Community will be the link. It'll be the way that Jesus himself moves us from being a healed and healing church to being a church that's actually participating on mission with him creating restoration here in Glen Carver. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us and for being good God. Thank you for forgiving us. Empower us by your Holy Spirit. Fuel us with your word and with your sacraments to offer the same forgiveness to each other. And we'll give you the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.